about God is love. The, this section of 1 John, I'm titled the previous lesson, God is love, we live in him, or something like that. This one is God is love, living in confidence. And our next lesson will be God is love, living with no fear. The richness and beauty and depth of this passage cannot be overstated. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this message and have a little bit of uneasiness, I guess. How do you explain something that's so good? And how do you explain something that has been missed by so many Christians? I spent a lot of my week with people and talking to people, and I've done it for the last almost 40 years. And this area is one of the struggles a lot of people have, a lot of Christians have. I want to read you a quote from a young lady. She said this, I feel like God punishes me for sins all the time. I feel that there is always something I'm being punished for. I know that is impossible because there are not enough minutes in the day for God to punish us. I probably should not call it punishment, but that's the way I feel about God's justice. I know of God's love and blessings for me. For that, I'm eternally grateful and thankful. But I live with this fear that one mess up and I'll be punished again. This came from a 21-year-old young lady going to a Christian college. She was described as strong and knowledgeable, strong and knowledgeable Christian. Now, look at that, and as I read it, first time I read it, when I came to the third sentence, I know that is impossible. I was expecting because God is love or something. But listen, I know that is impossible. Because there's not enough minutes in the day for God to punish me. Basically what she's saying, our sins are so full, God doesn't have enough time to punish us for what we deserve. And there's a mixture of feelings and what I know at the same time. She says, I, I know of God's love and blessings for me. I know of God's love and blessings for me. But what's driving her is this feeling of fear of knowledge of her sins, of knowing that she deserves punishment, deserves condemnation. She lives with this fear that one mess up and I'll be punished again. My experience working with Christians, not only here, but throughout the world, I've been in a lot of countries. It seems to me that a vast number of Christians... And if I were to give a number, I'd say about 90% struggle with this to certain degrees, maybe 100%. This lingering doubt, fear concerning their relationship with God. And the thought seems to be, as I work with folks, as long as I don't mess up, God will hold back his punishing hand. But it's always there. Held back, ready to, ready to come in and punish me. 
And if you can't relate to this, if you're saying, man, I totally don't know what you're talking about. It's a great opportunity for you to tone out, (laughs) open up your Bible and read something else. But I think most of us struggle with this, struggle with this, this fear of the punishment of God. And it comes out in a lot of times in our practice. We want to do what's right. And we read the Bible and say, man, I want to do what's right. I want to do what God tells me to do. And I study it and I read it. But, man, I don't want to end up being like Nadab and Abihu. If you don't know that story, you can turn over to Leviticus chapter 10 and read that story. I won't go into detail. But that's often the story that's used to say, see, you mess up a little bit. God's going to punish you big time. And so we read this, this section, God is love, and we think about God is love, and I think we, often we interpret it, we, in our minds, we just kind of translate it back quickly into God is love means God holds back punishment. And so we're people never quite sure, am, am I pleasing to God or am I not pleasing to God? There's always this nagging doubt, I don't know where I stand with God, you know, I'm not sure, you know, where I am. Kind of like walking through life on eggshells, spiritual eggshells, wondering, am I pleasing to God or, or am I not? Now, I want you to compare the words that we just read from this young lady that I believe many of you can relate to, to this. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Contrast God's word here with how we live and how we think. And I'll further defend my thesis <laughs> that the first thing people think of uh, you know, when we, we struggle with this fear of punishment is that the first thing when I read this passage, and this has happened in the last uh, couple of weeks at least two or three times, as I've read this, as I've said, shared it with someone, and as I've read books about this, it almost, almost always the people who write the books and the people who listen to this say, but, they listen to this and say, but we are supposed to fear God, but we are, they begin to explain it away. And, it's, it's, and, and that's one track I took. I took and said, well, I want to make sure that people don't misunderstand what it says. So I wanted to tell you what it doesn't say. And I thought, well, why don't I just tell you what it says? Because a lot of times we say what it doesn't say, and we don't want you to misunderstand this. And so we, and we, we might save that for another lesson, because I'm not going to be able to finish both verses. You know that. <laughs> I'm almost going to be able to finish one verse. Seems like Nathan's giving me a little extra time. I'll try not to take it all. You know, the good news, I've said this over and over in First John, the good news is so good that you can't hardly believe it. 
The good news about Jesus, about God, is so good that you can hardly believe it. And this is one section, one, two verses here that, that display that in a wonderful way, in a great way. It builds on all the previous verses. It comes to this great crescendo here. It's so loud. It's so awesome that the temptation for us is to figuratively cover our ears and just say, I can't take that. It's too good. It's too good to be true. Let me read you a very short text. Let's see if I can get to it. Yeah. My mother, she's not here today. She might be here on the, she probably is here on the live stream. She's not feeling good today. She texted me last week. She said, what are you doing today? Always wonder if she's asked me to come over to do something for her. (laughs) Sorry, Mom. (laughs) That's okay. I don't mind. But this is how I replied to her because this is what I was doing. Trying to figure out the best way to explain something that most Christians don't believe. I think that's where we are. This is so good that it's hard for us to believe. And again, I'm saying, I, and I hate make, to make such a general statement like that because I know there's some people in the audience that say, well, don't count me in on that. And if you're there, you're blessed. Stay there. Just be the amen party. All right? If our desire is to develop a body of believers who are, who are inspired to be obedient to towards obedient devotion to God, if we want to develop a body of believers who have a life of joyful service and willing to give themselves in daily worship to the Almighty God, then these words must be embedded on our hearts. On the other hand, if we desire to develop a body of believers who are rigidly obedient and who never cross the line, especially in those felony sins, which really mess us up, whose attendance and participation in church activities are guaranteed, people who at least outwardly do things right, then we need to impress on them a strong legal standard that emphasizes God's displeasure and punishment when we cross the line. That's our choices. And here's the start reality. We're going to fail either way we go. A harsh legalistic standard and emphasis on punishment will not stop some from sin. Book of Romans says that the very fact that you say don't do it, Paul says, makes me want to do it. Give me a legal standard. I want to break the law. And if we if that's our focus, that we're going to write down the law and say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Thinking that people aren't going to do it or you must be here at the services, you have to be participating in this way and set the legal standard. People will break the law. It's going to happen. And on the other hand, if we have a proper teaching, and I mean, I want to emphasize proper teaching of God's love because we mess that up a lot. Proper teaching of God's love. We're going to have some who's going to take advantage of that. We're going to mess up. It doesn't matter either way. People aren't going to do the right thing. And yet we succeed when we share the good news because it is the power of God. That's the power of God, the good news. When we share the truth of the gospel in its fullness, people will respond. We must teach the good news regardless of whether people reject it or whether they take advantage of it. 
That's their choice. My choice is to share it with you and to tell you this is where we have to go. This is what God wants us to do. And if some people take advantage of it, I'm sorry about that. If some people reject it, I'm sorry about that too. But if you do not believe that you can live your life going to the day of judgment in perfect confidence, with no fear of eternal punishment, these words from God should inspire you. These words inspired by the Holy Spirit written down by the Apostle John should be where you should anchor your life. God wants you to have confidence. And God wants you to have no fear. Let's look at the text. In this way, he begins. And I've shared with you that John is writing thematically. He's, he's taking a theme and he's expanding on it. He's taking several themes. And they all interrelate with each other. And he expands on them. He develops them. We're going to show this a little bit later in the lesson. How he continues to expand on a theme over and over. Words over and over. He deepens the thought each time. He brings it to our memory again. He tries to help us to understand over and over. We, I call it circular thinking. He keeps coming back around to the same things over and over. And so when we come to this, word, this phrase, in this way, he's pointing backwards. He's pointing back in this way, and he's pointing backwards to something. I ask the question, in what way? All right, this is how I study the Bible. I read things, and I'll ask myself a lot of questions. So when he said, in this way, my first question I came up with, well, in what way? And he's going back to the previous verse, but he's also connecting the entire, he's going all the way back in First John, not just the previous verse. And the, what he's trying to show here when he says in this way, he says, basically, whoever lives in love lives in God and God lives in him. Verse 16, this is verse 17, we bring us back to verse 16. And he says, the fact that God is in us, the fact that we are in God, that we live in this love relationship, then something happens. There's a consequence or there's an outcome in our lives due to this mutual indwelling. There's a mutual indwelling. God lives in us and we live in God. And because of that, there's a consequence to that. A lot of times we think of consequences as bad things. There's a good consequence that takes place here. And this isn't mystic theology here. We're not talking about something high up in the air that we don't really understand. This is practical living. I spent a whole lesson on that the last time. I spent previous lessons on it. It's practical daily living. He plants within me his holy life. And because of that, I grow in his holy nature. And I increasingly begin to look at life in the spiritual way. Plants, I use that word on purpose, plants. When you plant something, it takes time to grow. That's your Christian life. He plants his spirit in you. You're not immediately doing everything right. He plants his life in you and you grow, you develop. And it never ends as far as I know. I don't think it ever ends. In fact, the more I grow in Christ, the more I realize how awful... <laughs> I am by nature. I used to think I was pretty good. But then as I matured and grew and I saw the love of God more, I thought, no, you know, I've, I've got a long ways to go. My whole outlook of life is no longer limited to the temporary or the physical. But now my thinking, my meditation lies under the control of Almighty God. 
He used this word live or abide. My home is in God. It's the way I think. It's the way I live. The world and its forces will do its best to pull me away from home. This place where I dwell. My dwelling in God. But we're always drawn back home. God's always drawing us back home. Home in God means how I think. That's my attitude. Home in God means how I live. That's my actions. And I become comfortable. I remember, remember last week, I talked or like two weeks ago, I talked about this word abide. There's this sense of being comfortable. Do you remember that? When we abide in God, it's not something, oh, I've got to do it. It's just this is where I'm comfortable. This is the way God made me. And so as I, I abide in Him, I'm comf- comfortable in the way God thinks. And so I have what I, I can call God think is going on in my mind. And I'm uncomfortable in the way I should live. That's God love. And I'm uncomfortable when it happens the opposite way. In this way, love. That's the subject. That's what we've been singing about. And he's been emphasizing this since verse 7. And we can go all the way back, if you remember when uh, Clyde shared with us, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And he did a beautiful job introducing this, this section here. He talks about love before this, but this, in this section, he really begins to emphasize it. Let me read verse 7 with you just to pull us in. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The subject has been love. It's been love for one another. And he says the reason we can love one another is that, we have, that God's love has been placed in us. And now that God's love has been placed in us, then... We can properly love one another. And that's why I've called it God love over and over. I said this is God love because the word love is just mixed up with our society in whatever ways and the way we were raised and all these things that go in our mind. And if I use the word love, you might be thinking of something that's not God love. So we continue to go back to what what he describes here as, as God love. It's defined by God. It's not defined by our thought, human thought, our emotions. And so we'll see, and I'm not going to read these verses, but let's just show them real quickly. It's shown, this is how God love is shown, in the sending of His Son so that we might live. Chapter 4, verse 9, this whole section here. So He says, this is love. I sent my Son. So, why? You might live. It's initiated by God's nature and His will. Verse 10, the first part of verse 10. This is the way God is. This is His nature. This is who He is. And so He initiates this. And it's his will. He wants to do this. His love is the reason that he can justify and make all things right. The last part of that 10, of verse 10. He says, the reason I make all things right and I can justify you, even though you've done terrible things, is love. Uh, one of the songs we just sang, I wrote down the words, uh, where is it? Where is it? Um, Why should I gain from his reward? Did you remember that verse? That, what? No, no. God's love you. Why should I gain from his reward? Do you remember what you were saying? I do not know the answer. I do. I do know the answer. God's love. That's why I should gain from his reward. It has nothing to do with me. But I know what the, the poetry is saying there. It's so marvelous I don't have an answer to it emotionally. Of course you don't. I can sing that song without violating my conscience. 
But he says, why should I gain from this reward? Here's the answer. God's love. And it's the reason we can love one another. The reason I can love you and you can love me and God love is because God loves me. And then he goes on to say, in this way, love is made complete. This is this expansion. He's expanding on this word. It's a wonderful little word. Uh, It's translated perfect sometimes or made complete in in this translation. He's already used it in chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 12, and now he's going to use it three times in verses 17 and 18. Larry. I was trying to remember his name. Larry just came up and he said, I strive for perfection. We all knew what he meant. I think if you're listening, but what you're he's saying, I want to do everything right. I want to do it the right way. I strive for perfection. And so when we see this word made complete or made perfect, we think, well, we want to be perfect, but we can't be perfect. That's not what this word means. All right. It's the English word, but it's not what the word that John wrote down. And you can read it there and look at it if you want to. But the word that John wrote down isn't the way we think of perfect. Not that we strive for perfection. It means this, to reach maturity. Perfection in the sense that it's doing what it was created to do. It means that it's in good working order. It means it doesn't need anything else to complete it. Have you ever tried to to do a project with the wrong tools? Yeah. You know how frustrating that is? Uh, Change a battery out of my truck. You know, I'm trying to change the battery and you t- get a big old wrench or pliers, and you hold one side, and you take something on the other side, and you're trying with pliers, and, you, and it's just frustrating because it slips, and you can't do it. And if you just go down to AutoZone or Walmart and get the battery-changing tool, you go out there, and you slips it on, and you go, perfect. That's what it means. That tool was meant for that particular job. And when I use that... Per- particular tool for that particular job, it's perfect. That's what this word means. It doesn't mean perfect in the morally sinless or never makes a mistake. He's not talking about that. He's saying when you live the way you were created to live, perfect. It's perfect. Let's look at this word as it expanded. Let's go to First uh, John chapter 2, verse 5. And I have this illustration. I thought it was silly. And then Julia, without my even asking, said, I love the way you do that. So this is perfect. <laughs> That's supposed to be, you know, um, what, what, uh, water, water, you know, stone in the water and it cons- the circles going out. What, what? Ripples. That's what they're called. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we go to chapter 2, verse 5. Let me read it, okay? It's always good to read the Bible. But if, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete, made perfect in him. This is how we know we are in, in him. So he says here, when we obey his word, when we're reading and studying and obeying his word, what happens? Love matures in our lives. It's God's word that refines us. It's God's word that guides us. It's his word that teaches us and matures us into being the agape people we're supposed to be. So as we read his word, as we study his word, it helps us to go, oh, that's the way I'm supposed to be. Because a lot of times we're not the way we're supposed to be. And we're frustrated. Something's not working. 
we're the tool in the wrong place. It's not working. And so when it begins to work correctly, we go, ah, that's perfect. Let me read my paraphrase to this kind of help, help us see it. But those who continually treasure and guard and hold on to his word, that's what that word obey there means, to treasure and to guard and to hold his word, his instructions, his perfect law. And those people, God's love meets its goal and purpose, that of obtaining maturity and completeness in him. That's God's goal for you. And then he goes on in chapter 4, verse 12, where he says, um, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Again, he, he uses this word. This obedience that we have to God's word leads us to love one another. And when that happens, God's love is actually shining out in our lives. And that's God's goal for us. That's what God's want. That's that's when God says perfect. Let me read the paraphrase on this one. Eat. Let me, well, let's see. I, I wrote out the whole thing here. You can't see the unseen God. No one ever has. So don't expect God to come and tell you tell you that you're all right and doing well. However, if we practice God love with one another, we can be certain that God has made his home in us. We experience the knowledge that he dwells in us. Then each time we show God love, God himself says, perfect. That's the way you're meant to live. That's what's God. That's God's goal for us to live in, in his love. And now we have this further expansion in verse 17. Not only following his his word refines us towards maturity and acting out in God love toward one another. That's God's goal. But then something happens to us. Inside, something happens to us in our attitudes as this love matures in our lives. There's an attitude change that takes place in your life as you mature in love. And that attitude is how I reflect, how I think, how I see my relationship with God. As love develops in my life, God love, as I let God's word refine me, something happens inwardly. Let's read on. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So that. It's a neat little word. Those who would be interested in this, I'd sit down with you and show it to you. It's a neat little word that I went through the entire um, book looking for this one unique word. And the reason is because this word states purpose. This is the reason. This is what's going on. God's purpose in salvation. When we think of God's purpose in salvation, we say he sent his son so that we will be saved. We've said that, right? God sent the son so that we'll be saved. And that's true. That's right. But that's looking at it from my need. It's looking at it mainly from my perspective, and it's a legitimate perspective, but that's not the end. That's the beginning. He sent his son so that we will be saved, but also so that he would remake us. He wants to change us. It isn't that we get saved and we stay around here for 20 or 30 years wishing that we'd be in heaven. We're here. God is remaking us. He's changing us. 
We are to be something positive and good. God wants us to be the salt of the earth. God wants us to change this earth. We are to dwell in love. We are to love one another. We are to be like him in love. That's what we're supposed to do. I came this just flashed in my mind as I was writing notes. We are to be the agape clan. (laughs) That's the best I could do. We are the agape clan. If you haven't been here when Clyde shared with, with us, that's the, that's the Greek word, agape, love. We are people, we are to be the people known for God love. We live it, we practice it, we achieve what God has had in mind for us. The purpose of salvation isn't just to get to heaven, but it's to get us to change and be like God. And this new attitude we have in our relationship with God is called confidence. Confidence. As I stated at the beginning, too many Christians live tentative lives before God. Fearful, apprehensive, questioning their lives and the walk with God. As a young Christian, I remember one of my great disappointments with another Christian. And it helped mature me. It helped me grow up. But as someone I, I totally respected, totally saw him as a spiritual giant. And as he came to death, he was fearful. I just don't know. I just don't know. And my thought as a young Christian is if you don't know, after 50, 60 years, whatever it was, of a Christian life, and I lifted you up as one of my heroes. If you don't know, what hope is there for me? The gospel. That's the hope. Not in the person. That's where I grew up. I grew up saying, as much as I admired this person, as much as I loved him, as much as he was a great person in my mind, my hope was not in him. My hope is in the gospel. And if God says it, that's what I'm going to believe. That's not the walk of love, fear and apprehension. That's not the way of the agape clan. That's not God's will for you. Because he uses his word. This is God's word, not my word. We will have confidence on the day of judgment. And that word is a power-filled word. When you hear the word confidence... It's a power-filled word. It means boldness, an open manner, no fear, no need to hide, full courage, have an open countenance, perfect confidence. Literally, the word means all speech, all speech. It means speaking up, talkative, freedom of speech. Get up in a speech class. You've been in a speech class? One of the hardest things they say is get up in front of people and speak, you know. And you get up in speech class and you have young people that have never done a speech before and they get up there and they mumble and they're real quiet. Why? They're afraid. They have no confidence. They have nothing, no confidence in what they say. But then you have this, this young man or young woman who just have, they exude confidence and they speak and they have this great little speech and you think, oh, I wish I could was like them. I wish I could have speak like they speak. And that's what the word means. That's confident. means all speech. I can speak out. I don't have to hold back. And he's talking about we have full confidence. We have, we have this no fear on the day of judgment. 
And he's been expanding on this thought. He's not introducing this thought here. He's expanding on this thought. And so he, do you remember how he's, he's said this already? But you don't remember because you're like me. You forget. So we're going to go back and remind you. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 28. We'll do it quickly. So now, dear children, continue with him, abide in him, stay in him, be at comfort with him, so that when he appears, we may be what? Confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Listen to that. He says here in verse 28, the purpose of his abiding relationship is that so that when he comes back, you can be confident and unashamed. So my paraphrase. Now, dear special ones, I said. Since this is the case, keep yourself continually anchored in his life. Your home is in him. So when one day the door swings open and there he is, you will welcome him with a broad smile of confidence. There'll be no shirking or hiding or any type of cover-up embarrassed at his homecoming. That's what he's trying to say there. And then he goes on in chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And he talks about... God, who is far greater than our self-condemning heart, because every one of us, as we think of that confidence before God, we think, yeah, but, but, but what I, what I did yesterday, what I did today, the thoughts I had, the thoughts I'm having right now, he should be finished right now. <laughs> I almost am. Verse 19, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, in his presence, at rest in his presence. Can you believe that? This is how we do it, he says. Whenever our hearts condemn us, we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. He knows how you are. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Let me read that to you also, the paraphrase. You see, when the love of God is put into practice in our lives, we enter into a growing knowledge that we are authentically of the truth. When you're practicing God love, you know you're of the truth, truly of Christ. We can then quieten our tempestuous hearts as we live in his presence, even at those times when our conscience rises out up. And points an accusing finger at every sin and inconsistency in our lives. For you see, God is far greater than our self-condemning hearts. And he transcends our human limitations. He knows and understands all. Loved ones of God, if our hearts have been put at peace and rest, then we speak freely, that's confidence, before God, unhampered by fear or shame. And this is the purpose of mature love. This is the goal of love in our lives. Verse 17. Confidence on the day of judgment. And yet, even as I wrote these notes down, I thought, but how is that possible? How is that possible? Only if we're Christ-centered. Only if we live our lives centered in Christ. If we focus on our own ability, even to love, we'll never have confidence. I've had people ask me that. How can I be sure when there's some people in this audience I don't even love? (laughs) 
But the problem is you're thinking of yourself. It's a God-centered gospel. This is one thing First John shows us over and over again. It's from him that love originates, verse 7. It is he who sent his son that we might live, verse 9. It is that love is that he loved us and he sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 10 of chapter 4. He who lives in us and who makes his love complete in us. Verse 12. It's he who gave us the spirit. Verse 13. It's he who sent his son to be the savior of the world. Verse 14. And all I did was take, take that little context there. I, I was tempted to go all the way back to First John. Chapter 1, and just go all the way through and show you how, what a God-centered, Christ-centered gospel this is. And I didn't need to. Just go back to verse 7 in here. And here he's saying, look, the focus is on what who did. What he did. It was his love that originated. He did this. Why? So that we might live. But he did it. He sent his son. It's all about God. And so you ask, well, but where, where am I in this gospel? Where, where is man? What do I have to do? And if you were paying attention, you notice there were two words that I missed in that sentence. Did you notice it? Here they are. In this way, love is complete among us. I left that out for the conclusion so that we'll be, have confidence in the day of judgment. It's an interesting little two words. The NIV says among us. Some of your translations will say in us. And I don't know of a single one, and I could be wrong because I didn't read them all, but translates it with us because that's what it really says. I was reading through in the original, and I thought, hmm, that says with. It doesn't say in. It doesn't say among. It says with. What in the world is he saying? And I thought, well, I don't know much. I'm a dummy. I looked at some commentaries, tried to figure it out. But then after... Thinking and meditating, oh, what in the world is he saying here? This is what he's saying. It is found with us. His love is made perfect. It finds us go with us. Indicates with our cooperation. You don't co cooperate with God, it don't work. All right? It's God-centered, completely God-centered. Focusing on God. He did all those things. He was the one who initiated. It's his nature. It's he sent the Asoni, his son as a atoning sacrifice. All those things is God-centered. But it doesn't push you out of the picture and say, well, I'll just sit back and do nothing. Among us, with us means with your cooperation. He did all the work. We cooperate in faith and obedience. Guess what? Chapter 5, he, he drives his point home. He spends a great deal of time in chapter 5 saying, you know, your faith. Your faith you have to have faith. You've got to believe this. It's put out there for you. God's done it all. But you've got to cooperate with it. You've got to listen to it. You've got to respond to it. You've got to be obedient to it. You've got to respond to his love. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street here. You have to cooperate. So let me ask you this. Is your faith sufficient enough to live your life in confident expectation of Judgment Day? When you think of judgment, 
Are you confident? If you're not, I suspect you're more me-focused than Christ-focused. You're thinking about if when I come to God, what I have done in my life that I shouldn't have done, all the terrible thoughts I had, you focus. That's your problem. You'll never walk into God's presence with confidence if you're thinking about what you've done. You've got to walk in His presence thinking about what He's done. That same song. Oh, I can't remember the first words. Let me think. But the, you, there's the first line, first thing. Who made a wretch his treasure. What's the first part of that? I, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That... He should, <laughs> come on, he should what, his only son? He should give his only son? All right, let me, he, he's pulling out the words here. Oh, here we go, look at that. Speak and it appears. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son. That's all First John, by the way. To make a wretch his treasure. Are you his treasure? Are you the rich? If you don't believe God has made you his treasure, you will never have confidence. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with what he did. Have I made that point? Thank you. Because sometimes I think people are sitting there going, Yeah, but. Because I've done it so much. Let me encourage you to focus on what God has done for you. In Christ, not what you have done for God. That's the path to mature love. That's the path to confidence on the day of judgment. And this.